Just a warning for this episode. We'll be talking about crime and murder, so it's not appropriate for kids or for anyone who finds those topics at all triggering. Thanks. Hey everyone, this is Gail from the Secret Life of Death podcast. Today, we're excited to announce a new podcast format. You see, my long-form, deep historical dive episodes take a really long time to make. And don't worry, I'm still going to do those. But in between those big shows, we'll be bringing you some short, one-off, true crime historical stories. And what's extra exciting about this new project is that it's a collaboration with the Caitlin Abrams. Hey everyone, Caitlin here. You might know me from my TikTok account, Manic Pixie Mom, where I clean graves and tell the stories of the people that own those graves. If you follow me, I've had a lot of followers ask me to do a podcast, and I'll be honest, I had no idea how to even start doing that. I was coming across a lot of really good stories and really wanted to share those um, in a longer format than TikTok allows. And Gail is a good friend of mine and is much more knowledgeable about production and recording and all that. So it seemed like a match made in heaven. So sit back and enjoy. The Secret Life of Death presents True Crimes from Olden Times with me, Gail Golick, and me, Caitlin Abrams. Today, episode one, The Farmhand's Awful Work, The Murders of Walter and Catherine Nichols. This story takes place in 1913 in the town of Guilford, Vermont, not far from where I live. And I accidentally came across this while I was researching something else for the podcast. Okay, so uh, tell me about what happened in Guilford, Vermont in 1913. Okay, so here's what's known about the events. And what follows is mostly based on newspaper articles from the time. And these would be from the local papers, like the Brattleboro Daily Reformer and the Brattleboro Evening Phoenix. So I thought we'd start by looking at some photos. Well, actually, I'll bring mine up so we can talk about it. Okay, so this is Catherine and Walter Nichols, and we think that this is probably their wedding day photo in 1910. Well, they sure do look joyous at that event. Um, I'm interested in the fact that their hair seems to be directly opposite one another. Hers is very high and his is very low, um, but it's a, it's a really clear picture. It's really nice to see. Um, and since this is an audio format, we have a woman standing and presumably her husband sitting down next to her. One thing I thought was interesting too, is that his wedding ring appears to be on his right hand. I don't know if that was more, um, customary back then to have it on the right hand versus the left. That I don't know, but yeah, if it was a wedding photo, maybe they were just staging it so that you could see that this, that there was, their wedding rings were displayed prominently. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I love her little brooch and her necklace and her little belt. Yeah, she's all decked out. They're very fashionable. 
the two of them. And they're a young couple at this point. She's, I think, maybe just about 18, so not very old. And he's maybe 23. So they're, they're quite a young couple. It's interesting because I think sometimes looking at old photos, you have some people that look like they're from the 1800s or early 1900s, and you have some people that their face looks more modern. And I feel that way about Catherine, not so much about her beloved husband. I think he looks straight out of 1863, Ken Burns music, writing a letter Mm -hmm. during the Civil War. Um, even though obviously he wasn't alive. Um, And I think she looks like a much more modern person minus her very poofy hair. Yeah, very poofy, but, but they're cute. They're this young, there's this clearly young, very cute couple. And it's a very sweet photo of the both of them. Yeah. It's really cool that you found it. It's kind of hard to find photos sometimes. Luckily this, the newspaper had a photograph of them published or this photograph. So many people on TikTok will ask me, to share more photos, but because the graves I'm cleaning are in really rural areas, people were even less likely to have access to a photographer. So I'm really excited when I can actually get a picture of the person or what I think is the person based on what I can find on genealogy websites, but it's definitely not a sure thing. So yeah, Yeah, it's amazing. And yes, a very rare thing uh, to be actually to, to find an actual photo of somebody who you're researching like that. So, as the story goes, when young couple, Walter and Catherine Nichols, then aged 27 and 21 respectively, didn't show up for services at the West Guilford Baptist Church in West Guilford, Vermont, Thursday evening, October 9th, 1913, people had started to suspect something. It wasn't like them to miss church. Their extended family was part of this church, Walter was the custodian there, and neighbors and friends that had seen them earlier that day had been given no indication that they might not be there that night. But as things go, perhaps one of them was sick or some last minute issue with a farm animal had cropped up. Certainly those things happened often enough. But on Friday, October 10th, when people still hadn't seen the couple, a few neighbors decided to stop by the Nichols farm and see if they needed any help. The front door to the house was open, but no one was inside. Nothing really looked out of place, so they left. Later that same day, the Nichols pastor, H.I. Kemp, had decided to stop by and check on the couple himself. He, too, found no one in the house, so decided to go check around the rest of the farm. And in the back mowing field, he found Walter laying face down with his skull bashed in. Whoa, that escalated quickly for the pastor. (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine just thinking that you're going to go visit a friend that's sick or something like that? Who would ever imagine that that's what you were going to find? Yeah, exactly. And I I sure that it was like this back then and it's like that now in rural new england that you know it's the our community no one locks their doors it's a small town so it's not something that people come across on a daily basis especially if you're a pastor right right exactly all right so let's so what did pastor kemp do obviously he was rattled. (laughs) So uh, Pastor Kemp, he ran to the nearest neighbor's house. He called the doctor, he called the county sheriff, and the local police. 
West Guilford, as you said, being a very small community, didn't have their own police department. So they relied on regional police to help them out when they needed it. So due to the nature of Walter's injuries, it was clear to the doctor and the police that he had been murdered. And so an autopsy was ordered for the next day in the nearby city of Brattleboro, Vermont. An examination of the crime scene told the police that Nichols was likely attacked right there in the field, beset from behind, as laying nearby were Walter's false teeth and a bloody handkerchief and the likely murder weapon, a hammer. Yikes. I uh, I read in something one time that said that a lot of times rural doctors would be asked to perform these autopsies. And often it was outside in a field or in a barn, a lot different than today, <laughs> the antiseptic morgue of today. So I wonder, I'm interested to hear how that went and what they found out. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine how it must feel to come upon this um, as just a rural farmer, a rural uh, police officer um, and pastor that you're living your just very pretty simple life with uh, your very predictable routine. <laughs> and then this absolutely terrible thing. I know, I, I can't even imagine. And I think that's why these stories are so riveting because my God, we, there is no point of reference for these people. We watch crime shows, you know, 24 hours a day nowadays, but back then this idea of murder and uh, and and death, at least uh, by violent means um, in your own little town was just completely a foreign thing. Absolutely. And their minds just had to be racing to make sense of what they're looking at. Because like you said, they have no point of reference. And certainly even those of us who like true crime, like <laughs> me, wouldn't be ready for it either as much as we um, have watched or anything like that. But uh, even more so back then when there, as you said, there's no point of reference. And, and they must be wondering, you know, if Walter's here, where's Catherine? You know, is she hurt somewhere? Has she been taken somewhere? They Again, no point of right. reference. What has happened right. to her? Right. And as you said in the beginning, it's escalating very quickly. So um, they certainly knew from that point uh, that they look at, from looking around that Catherine was not in the field with her husband and she wasn't in the house because that had been searched by several people at that point. Briefly, people had speculated that maybe she had run off with their hired hand, Irving Risley, who was also missing at this time. And I've got a photo of Irving as well. This is also from the newspaper archives. That is a stash. Yeah. I really like that. He's old timey for sure. Yeah. A little H.H. Holmes vibe, <laughs> I think. Not to, not to uh, mix our metaphors. <laughs> Mix our murderers. Yeah, not to mix our mix our murderers, and uh, yeah, not to malign him because I, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. I guess in this situation, but he is very handsome. I would say for the time, he should be right. He looks like he should be riding a penny farthing. <laughs> yes, absolutely, and I bet he used a lot of wax to get that mustache so pointy. Yeah, it's a it's a looker. <laughs> So, as I said, initially, the police and other people thought that Catherine might have run off with Risley, but that idea was quickly dispelled. When they looked through the house, none of her dresses or her jewelry were missing. And as the day wore on, and the more information they found, the situation began to reveal itself more fully. The sheriff was certain at that point that Catherine Nichols did not run off with Irving Risley. But 
as night fell, the search for Catherine had to be halted. So on Saturday, October 11th, friends and family turned out en masse to search the rest of the farm and the fields for any sign of Catherine Nichols or Irving Risley. A neighbor who was in the search party made his way to the Nichols apple orchard after hearing a horse whinny come from that direction. There he found the couple's horse, still hitched to the wagon and tied to a tree. Not far from that wagon, he found Catherine. She was lying face up with her apron pulled up over her face. And when he pulled the apron back, he saw that the left side of her face had been blown away by a shotgun blast. Yikes. Yes. So again, a neighbor dealing with an absolutely unimaginable situation. This neighbor ran back to the Nichols house to notify the searchers that Catherine had been found and to get more help in searching the rest of the orchard. And so with the search party, not far from Catherine, they found Irving Risley dead by a self-inflicted gunshot wound, quote, by fastening the gun to a tree and discharging it by means of a string which he attached to the trigger, passed around the back of the tree and pulled with his hand. So he jerry-rigged the gun to shoot himself. Is that really like feasible? I, I'm trying to like, as you were saying it, I was kind of like, and he did this and this and this and this, and I can't really picture it. I guess. Yeah, it's it seems very elaborate and I was a little unsure about how how your regular farmhand would know enough to, you know, I, I don't know if he studied physics or <laughs> <laughs> levers and pulleys and that sort of thing, but um I wondered about that too because it does seem very a very elaborate way like he thought about how to do this clearly. Yeah. And um so I was asking my husband about it and he's an old farm kid himself and he made a really good point about farming in the 1910s. And he said that, of course, all kinds of activities back then, all kinds of farming activities would have required the use of block and tackle and pulleys just to move around the massive heavy things that they were required to do on a farm on a daily basis. So really any farmhand would know how to rig up a block and tackle, which is essentially what this whole system was that Risley used to configure the gun to shoot himself. Wow. So I'm, I live now in a heavy farm area in Western Vermont and a lot of old farm equipment like washes up in the river and stuff like that. Cause people just used to throw their trash any old where. Um, and I have a neighbor who makes art from it. And I've actually seen some of these pulleys or a kind of a, an apparatus meant to grab the hay to move it around. It's mm -hmm. really interesting what these people would have had to do. And some of it probably was homemade right so oh i would imagine yeah you just especially farmers yeah you make it work however you know yeah. <laughs> before tim gunn was saying it the farmers were saying it <laughs> exactly that part of it was very interesting uh sort of a a clue into maybe what was going on inside of irving risley's mind but after the bodies of Catherine and Irving had been found, the sequence of events, at least by the sheriff's estimation, seemed to be pretty obvious. And so they called off the autopsy. They figured Risley had killed Walter, then he killed Catherine, and then he killed himself. But in the end, and even to this day, no one is really sure why. 
in the days after those three bodies were found, of course, more information came to light and was reported in the newspapers that helped firm up the timeline of events at the Nichols household. And it also brought to light a lot of details, of course, leading many to speculate over the scenario for the murders. Nothing's changed there. <laughs> no, 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 no. And of course, this this had so many interesting twists and turns and angles that uh, it was fodder in the newspapers for months and months and months. And that's always interesting to me. And one of my favorite parts about genealogical research are the old newspapers, because the rules around what they could publish were basically non-existent. If they found somebody on the street that said, yeah, I saw that guy run around with a fur coat on or something and be like, well, he's crazy. <laughs> there was no checks and balances or anything. Yeah. Yeah. The standards of, that we have from, from modern journalism certainly didn't apply in 1913, of course. All right. So what's next? So it was reported in these newspapers that on the morning of Thursday, October 9th, this would be the morning of the murders, the Nichols neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Phelps, had stopped by the Nichols home as Walter, Catherine, and Irving Risley were having breakfast. And according to the Phelps, everyone was acting normally, and there was nothing that indicated to them that there was anything wrong in the Nichols household. Hmm. Okay. It appeared, at least based on the Phelps's story, that after their morning visit, the Nichols and Risley must have gotten on with their day, considering where the bodies were eventually found. At some point after breakfast, Walter, Catherine, and Risley had hitched up the horse to their express wagon, loaded it with some barrels, and all three headed out to pick apples in their apple orchard, which was located about three quarters of a mile west of the house. It was speculated that once they had arrived in the orchard, Catherine set to work picking apples, and while she stayed in the orchard, Walter and Risley went to a barn about a quarter mile from the orchard to retrieve a ladder that they needed to reach the fruit at the top of the trees. That's interesting. And I wanted to say, apropos of nothing, that apple orchards were a big deal in Vermont at this time. And some of them still even exist in the middle of the woods where you wouldn't expect them where there used to be a town. Um, now they're, you know, wildlife habitat. And I know that from my husband that works a lot in the woods. Yes, exactly. And that's a great point that you wouldn't necessarily know it today, but all of a lot of this area that's all been grown up, you'll be tromping along in the middle of the woods and come across this seemingly disconnected apple orchard out in the, you know, at least, well, in this, in this case, three quarters of a mile from a house, like who would be doing that? But yeah, that was a huge industry for local farmers at that time. Now, again, it was suspected that a fight or attack presumably by Risley upon Walter, began when they went into the barn. This was based partly on the fact that an orchard ladder had been found in the barn hanging askew, and by something odd, a neighbor, Willard Fisher, who had lived at the other end of the Nichols field, had witnessed. He said, sometime around two o'clock on Thursday afternoon, Fisher saw two men running away from the Nichols barn. He saw one man fall and one man continue for a short distance, then stop and walk back toward the house. Later, Fisher saw a man going from the direction of the house toward the orchard, 
carrying something, supposedly. A little while after that, he heard two gunshots. Understandably, Fisher never imagined that what he was actually seeing and hearing was an attack and murder. Yeah, I mean, and this happens today, right? I I feel like people might see something that's a little suspicious, but kind of put a block in their brain, like, no, absolutely couldn't be. And when you factor in the cultural attitudes of New England of you have your business, I have my business, we meet at the town hall and talk sometimes. (laughs) I think that you probably have even more of the um, distance between them that you wouldn't think, oh, you know, I'm witnessing a murder right now. Maybe that's what yeah, it is who, going on. Who would ever think that? Why would you ever think that? Yeah. And circling back to not having a point of reference, because now I think because all we have are references and we walk around with them in our brains all the time, at least I do, I think that I'm more likely to see something and be suspicious versus someone in 1913 Vermont who is not looking at it through that lens. It, of course, and, and to that point, even even today, where we live in this very rural area, there's people people target shooting all the time. There's people hunting at different times of the year. So to hear a gunshot in the middle of the day uh, wouldn't necessarily be enough to to raise someone's suspicions in these rural areas either. Very true. So taking all of that into account, of course with such wild and unusual thing as a double murder and suicide in this little farming community. People were naturally desperate to understand what had happened and why. And there, of course, were no shortage of theories as to what might have motivated Irving Risley to do what he did. One theory was that Risley was angry because he had been told by Nichols that he would no longer be needed at the farm and was let go. Risley was a single man with no home of his own, and he would have depended on a job like the one with the nickels to provide not just his money, but a roof over his head and food. After losing that kind of security, especially going into the winter, as this was October, that would have been a big deal for a man in Risley's position. However, no one could be exactly sure when he was given that news that it was time for him to move on. So it's hard to say that this was what set him off. This has been something interesting that I've found in research uh, and honestly in a lot of the crimes. The story of a couple who take in a random single dude to (laughs) help them around the farm, which makes a lot of sense, but I feel like that's something that wouldn't necessarily happen now. (laughs) In one of the stories I shared, it was this husband, or excuse me, this father and son met this homeless man at a Salvation Army. And they said, hey, why don't you come help us? And he bashed in both of their heads with an ax. But, you know, it's interesting to for this guy to say that, you know, he was going to lose his security. You know, one way to lose your security is murder. Yeah. And suicide. So. Right. So so that was clearly that might have been a factor, but there was probably a lot more to it than just that, than just him having to find another job. But still. Another theory of what might have motivated Risley was that it was about money. Friends and neighbors, the Phelpses, remembered something odd from their visit to the Nichols on the morning of the murder. After the men got to their work, 
Mrs. Phelps asked Catherine Nichols if she could break a 50 cent piece. Catherine said she could, but when she went to her room to where her money was kept, Catherine found that she actually didn't have enough to break the coin. Mrs. Phelps said Catherine was surprised by this. And this wasn't the only instance of missing money on the Nichols farm at the time of the murders. After the bodies were found and the house was searched for clues, it was noted that there was about $250 in cash that the Nichols were known to have had on hand that was unaccounted for. And that when Walter's body had been searched after his death, his pocket watch was missing and his billfold was empty. I mean, it's the oldest motive in the book, right? Money, <laughs> right. Money and jealousy, basically, right. um, in a right. time period. Do we know how much $250 would be nowadays? It would be uh, a little over $7,000. Oh, wow. In, in cash. In cash, in their house. Right, because who went to banks back then, right? Yeah, yeah. And there wouldn't have been, you know, necessarily like a central bank just down the road like we have now. So it makes a lot of sense that you'd want to keep it in cash. But it also would be a huge risk when you are bringing in dudes to your home to help. Right. So Exactly, right. Exactly. For a dude like um, Risley, I could see that um, it would be a big temptation you know, it's right there. Maybe they're not paying you very much, or maybe you're, you're thinking you're getting the raw end of the deal. So you're kind of, you know, sneaking some money away. Uh, not to say it's right and you shouldn't do that, but I could see where that would lead, I guess. Right. It really it's, it You really can. You can see it all unfold very, very, very easily from that scenario. But of course, that's not all. Um, perhaps the most sensational theory, maintained that Risley was in love with Catherine Nichols. Mm. And this was, a right, so this was according to Walter's parents, Herbert and Nellie Nichols. And they had actually been living in that same farmhouse with Catherine and Walter and Risley up until a week before the murders when they moved out. So the in-laws knew Irving Risley well and said that they were never happy with the amount of attention Risley paid to Catherine, but were adamant that Catherine did not particularly care for him. Hmm. So maybe the original plan is, you know, I'm getting fired anyway, I'm in love with her, kill her husband, take the money, and surely she'll want to be with me. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> you know, well, well, surely. She's going to totally be on board with me right now. Yeah, and I don't know as if we'd ever really be able to say exactly why Risley did what he did. But like with any spree killer of the past or the present, he had uh, a lifetime of very sad clues that all led up to this fateful day. So at the time of the murders and his suicide, Risley was a 38-year-old farm laborer. He was divorced, he had one child, and had no particular home. He was a known alcoholic with at least two drunk and disorderly charges in a nearby town. Again, Walter's mother, Nellie Nichols, described him as, quote, always penitent after drinking spells, often crying, and had been on a drinking binge just two weeks before the murder. And so Risley was also actually a veteran, having served in the Spanish-American War in 1898 with the Vermont National Guard, first volunteers at Chickamauga, Georgia. Hmm. And if you know anything about your military history, 
what happened in Chickamauga was pretty terrible. For Risley, and like most other young men who had signed up for war in 1898, he was looking for excitement, he was looking for adventure, but really all he got was boredom, disappointment, and a whole lot of diarrhea. <laughs> well, you're going to get that. <laughs> Which, it will, that will happen. Yes. Uh, the only notes I could find associated with his military service listed him as Ewing L. Risley, and he was absent in Division Hospital July 18th through July 29th, 1898 with dysentery. Oh, that's interesting that it's listed as Ewing because that always makes me wonder what is the original name? Because sometimes these people didn't really read or write. Some of them didn't know how to spell their names because they wouldn't really right. have to. So, you know, somebody misheard it one time and they put that there. It's part of what makes uh, genealogical research so challenging is that, you know, a single name can be uh, entered into some database. I'm saying database like it was yesterday, but, you know, <laughs> it can be written down on a piece of paper as in 14 different ways or a nickname or, you know, anything like that. Or he could have given them a fake name. <laughs> so Right. And people often go by their middle names or, you know, different stuff like that. It's all kind of all over the place. And so in his particular situation, per Irving, Ewing, Irving, whichever name he went by, this guy really did not have a lot going for him. And perhaps what motivated him to murder and suicide was not just one thing, but many things. Perhaps it was the fact that he was being let go by the Nichols, and perhaps it was the fact that he was in love with Catherine, and perhaps it was that he was in the presence of this family, the Nichols, that seemed to have it all. Walter had this 250-acre farm, this lovely young wife, he had a family that was close by, and he was part of a community with his church and his extended family, and he had money while Risley comparatively had nothing. I think that's a, a pretty important point um, in this whole thing. And I think this is something that we still deal with. With every, I think everybody deals with it to some extent, um, the comparing, but I think it particularly hits men mm. hard um, in, in these kind of settings. And it certainly did back then, um, probably even more so, where you were really judged by your... Mm -hmm. Uh, presence in the community by your stature in the community um, and to be 38 which is comparatively pretty old for that time um, in terms of you should have your life together by now it probably feels like that's unattainable for me that's out of reach and that jealousy can pretty easily mm. morph into anger and hatred it certainly can. And especially with Risley, he, I can see where he might've felt like he was owed a lot more from the Nichols family. Mm -hmm. There was a short newspaper article from the end of March in 1913 that drops yet another possible clue here. Risley had been working for Walter for only a few short weeks when he had a pretty serious accident on the job. Risley had been hired to help Nichols with the sugaring. And for those of you who don't know what sugaring is, this is uh, the time of year in the spring in New England, in New York, in Canada, where people go around and they gather the maple sap from maple trees that is then boiled down to make maple syrup and maple sugar. It was another big industry in farming back in those days. And so one day, Risley and Walter were out collecting sap. 
and somehow Risley had fallen in the snow and his legs had been run over by the sled carrying five barrels of sap. The details of the report said he was able to walk back to the house, but he was in pretty bad shape afterwards. And that makes sense. And especially if you are somebody that is prone to alcohol, it makes sense that you'd, you know, turn more to that. Um, And, you know, sap isn't light because if you've ever seen sap, um, it it basically looks like water because it's mostly water. Um, So it's basically five huge barrels of of liquid. Yeah. So he, he was probably in rough shape. Um, at, at the end of that, even after having healed from that. But in the fall of that year, he was up and moving around. Clearly, he was still working on the farm, but he might have had any number of lingering pains or physical difficulties from an accident like that. And for a person who relied on his ability to do physical work to make a living, if he was injured, he was getting to the point where he had fewer and fewer options as he got older. Yeah, I mean... Seriously, that not to feel bad for him. I feel I feel bad for him up to the day of the murder. Um, Yes. But so I'm wondering, how did this play out in the community? Um, Because I feel like it's relatively consistent across these cases, at least now. And I think even back then, where you've got like the three people that make up some story that Risley like showed up at their house at night and threatened them or something. Um, But then there are others who are just this isn't happening. I don't want this to happen. And going back to the New England, white New England cultural attitude was, you know, we need to not talk about this. We need to kind Mm of um, keep, make sure everyone stays out and we don't have, um, you know, overrun by people and press or anything like that. But at the same time, having to sort of come to terms with the loss of two pretty significant community members in a small town. Obviously, this this whole event was devastating for the region and the community. Of course, a murder-suicide um, was scandalous and horrifying in and of itself. But for Walter and Catherine Nichols' extended family and their large group of friends, it was doubly, triply devastating. And in the early days, of course, they all came together to grieve and to console one another. Walter had two siblings, um, Austin Nichols and Mary Carpenter, and they both lived nearby. And newspaper reports talked about them coming home to their parents' house. And they stayed there for a couple weeks and up to a month and helped with whatever preparations were needed for the, the funeral services and burials. Catherine actually had an older sister who lived nearby. Her name was Nanny Cotting, and she had married a local man She too came together with the extended Nichols family and helped with the planning at the church and cemetery services. And then after she and two of her children made a trip back to Virginia, where she and Catherine were from, she stayed there for quite a while with their family to grieve with them. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I think there, there are a lot of um, points here of family coming together. I mean, that we still, that's obviously still happens now. I wonder from the parents' perspective, you know, at this time, having children, you generally expected that at least one of them was going to die in infancy. And I would guess that by the time they become adults, you think, all right, they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. We did it. All we right. did it. Pat, <laughs> pat ourselves on the back. 
now we have people to take care of us when we get old. Um, and, mm. you know, sad enough to lose a, a, an adult child to disease, but then to have them brutally murdered by this person that they were supposed to trust, probably just, just as it would happen now. Um, and the fact that uh, Risley ended his own life means that you're never really going to get justice or answers or um, really understand why this happened. So clearly this was, yes, very devastating for the Nichols and uh, the extended family on both sides. They had a double funeral planned for Walter and Catherine at their local Baptist church, and they ended up burying the couple in the West Brattleboro Cemetery. Of course, the other side of the story was no family could be found to claim Irving Risley's body, even though he had a son and an ex-wife in the area. And understandably, he was denied burial at the West Brattleboro Cemetery, the same cemetery where the Nichols had been interred. But finally, the town of Halifax, the town that actually borders Guilford, took it upon themselves to bury Risley in the Meeting House Hill Cemetery in West Brattleboro, Vermont. But in the end, no one from Risley's family ever stepped forward to claim him. So that's a huge tell right there. Yeah, huge. And the denial from the cemetery, um, I think I think that's universal, it's everywhere, but it really does um, ring true to me as a born and bred New Englander um, and as someone who's from a small town, that that's a very deliberate slight. It's a very yeah. deliberate, you are not one of us and completely understandable. Um, and the fact that they would have to look for someone to yeah. um, take them on, take him on and, mm -hmm. and bury him somewhere. But did they ever find the money? No, not that I'm aware of. So there was never any follow-up in any reports that they had ever found any of the missing items that came off of Walter's body, never found the money. So really, for all the things that Risley may or may not have done, the only crime he can definitely be connected to are the murders of Catherine and Walter Nichols. Mm, that's interesting. He seems like just a very tragic character. Um, certainly not sympathetic based on what he did. Um, and I'm not no. dismissing or diminishing the heinousness of what he did, but you do get the sense that he had lived a pretty difficult life in a time when living a difficult life was often life or death. Mm. Um, and he had, you know, been overlooked, dismissed, discounted, um, and he never really quite got his life together uh, for a lot of reasons. And, and some of those were his own fault and his own choices. Um, you know, and he was desperate and he was despondent and he was an addict, um, completely alone, uh, you know, having failed, I imagine he felt at life, you know, at marriage, at, at fatherhood, at, at work, that kind of thing. Um, so I think it follows the archetype that we have even now of a man who would, you know, murder two people, realize what he did and then end his own life. Yeah, I know he is exactly the type of person who you would kind of expect to do something like this. And as a postscript to this story, what with our shared interests in cemeteries, of course, I naturally went to the grave sites of the Nichols and to Risley's grave site. And as I said before, for obvious reasons, uh, they were buried in different cemeteries. The Nichols were in the Mather or the West Brattleboro Cemetery. And Risley was placed in the Meeting House Hill Cemetery, and both of those are in West Brattleboro, Vermont. 
And as you'd expect from what we know of the Nichols family, they were all buried together. This was a big family plot along with Walter's parents and his sister and her family. And it's in the middle, there is this nice big granite central marker and with the Nichols family name on it. And then a number of smaller individual grave markers for each family member around that large central marker. So very fancy, very nice, very well-maintained, well-kept. Irving Risley's is also rather how you'd expect it. He was buried at the edge of the property at the Meeting House Hill Cemetery, and he happened to be next to this totally unrelated man who also just happened to die around the same time that Risley did in 1913. So he's not surrounded by anyone he knows, no family members. And his stone is really kind of sad. First of all, I was surprised he even had one, but it's this very small crumb of granite. There's there's no finish, there's no polish. And here is again where his name, the issue of his name comes up again. They spell it Irving, Irving with an I. So they, they misspell his name on the gravestone and they also get his birth date wrong. So this guy, you know? Yeah, he's, it, he's nobody even in death. And I think I, I share your... Um, your uh, confusion about him even having a stone because even small stones were uh, back then expensive just as they are now Um, I wonder if you know a family member kind of stepped forward to to put it there like we got to do something but I mean a lot of times I feel like these people would have been buried in the potter's field you know the poor lot and just sort of forgotten um especially in these sort of big rural cemeteries in new england placement was very important to people placement said something about who you were and who you were related to and uh, that you could all be together um so the fact that he's way out there with just some other random dude is like i said before pretty intentional i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know, because you you got to bury him. You can't just have a dead body hanging out in the open, though that is not without precedent <laughs> at this time and earlier. Um, and it's, you know, it's part of the grieving process, putting someone to rest and all that. Um, but you got to think that this story, I would think people still talk about this story in Guilford. I th- it is. It's it's funny. Um, is It's not funny. I shouldn't say it's funny. <laughs> Nothing about it is funny. <laughs> I know what you meant. Uh, this because this thing was terrible. This was this brutal, brutal crime, and it was senseless, and it was so sad. And I can see where people uh, looking at the the gravestone of Catherine and Walter, that the family, the immediate family, and even the the community, they want to remember them. They want to uh, honor them and have a place as cemeteries are designed to do, to give people a place to come together and think about the person that they lost. And I can see it's sort of both sides of that where the family and the community really wanted to honor them and remember them, but they also would want to forget that too at the same time so that i think you have that maybe happening with the treatment of the of risley's grave he is he is buried he is marked but it's it's off in the corner it's a small gravestone um you're kind of doing the pro forma things that you have to do when somebody dies but uh to really consider everything that to remember everything that he did might have been a little too much for people so i can see where they'd 
they'd still talk about it, but also not talk about him quite so much, but talk about Catherine and um, Catherine and Walter themselves more than than Risley. And um, after I started researching this, I made contact with a longtime local resident of Guilford, and their family was actually involved in the search for Catherine back in the day. Oh, wow. And That's super cool. yeah, it's a, it's pretty amazing. And she knows all about it. And yes, that those uh, her family, her her generation and, and the generation before they all know very much. They're still connected. You know, they still knew people who knew people who were involved in this, uh, the search and knew the families and everything. And, and to the point of remembrance of Catherine and Walter is sort of interesting. She said that after the murders, nobody wanted to live in the Nichols house. And it stayed vacant from 1913 um, and was vacant and untouched until after World War II. So I think that's the flip side of that. You can go to the graves to remember them, but maybe you don't want to live in the house. And that I can understand, too. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because they weren't murdered in the house. No, they weren't. But their <laughs> but stuff was still be- there. Their stuff was still in the house yeah. when the people bought oh, it wow. after World War II. Yeah, there was still stuff. an untouched house in New England for, you know, 30 plus years. Like, I can't imagine it was in great shape. No. Um, but it and, you know, is it still standing now? Do you know? It is. Yes, the house is still there, although they they don't tend they don't tell people where it is because uh, they don't want people, yeah. you know, looky loos and gobbledygookers going there and bothering the bothering the house and bothering the owners yeah i mean i i can i can speak about those people but also i might drive i know i I want to be one too at the same time (laughs) (laughs) it's it's like oh well they're doing they're bad they're bad i'm not but yeah i think that you see that again and again with um these sort of high profile murder cases i mean sometimes they just raise the house like they did with Mm -hmm. john wayne gacy Mm. If it were me that bought the house, I'd probably tell everyone and invite them in. But uh, I totally understand why people wouldn't want to do that. Um, and I think that um, the, it's really cool that you got to talk with somebody that actually remembers this story because I, I just have this feeling that the family member she knew that was involved in that talked about it all the time, like that they were involved in the search because mm. no one. Yeah people haven't changed and yeah. people would do that now <laughs> like they would and that would be such a as we've alluded to throughout our conversation this would have been a a defining moment in somebody's life to have been even in town let alone partake in the search for for this for these people that that would have had a long lasting impact on them yeah and I, I like your point about wanting to honor them but also wanting to forget because I think that's something that um, a lot of us encounter with our grandparents and with our great-grandparents just stuff that no one wants to talk about and now I think it happens now but I think we are a little more open I think in rural New England it's you know we're not talking about it where we've moved on why would we dredge up the past you know, you have the people that are excited and talk about it, but then you have the people that are like, why are you bringing up the past? It's over. It's done. Um, my grandmother who grew up in, uh, Massachusetts was like that. The family motto on that side is step over that log. It's done. We're stepping over it. (laughs) Never talk about it. So thanks everyone for listening, for sharing in our first episode of this. We're really excited to move forward with it. 
And thank you, Gail, for all your help in getting me ready to do this and in all your work in, in producing it and doing all the actual hard stuff. You know, we're really excited to, to kind of embark on this new chapter. I think this is going to be fun. It's a nice way to present a lot of these little side stories that I come across very regularly while I'm doing research for other things and there's just not an outlet for them, but I think they're good stories and they're interesting things that people want to know about. So um, I'm glad that we that we're that we're starting this because I think that that people well, well, we'll see. We'll see. You guys tell us. What do you think? Transcripts of every episode are available on our website, thesecretlifeofdeath.com. Music provided with permission by Epidemic Sound. For more information about this podcast, weekly posts, and fun extras, find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Secret Life of Death Podcast and on Twitter at TSLOD Podcast. And for more information about Caitlin's cemetery conservation and preservation work, you can find her videos on Instagram at Stoned in New England and on TikTok at Manic Pixie Mom. And please remember to rate and review this podcast. It really helps.